Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. You're listening to the Bellarmine Forum podcast. I'm your show host, John B. Manos, president of the Bellarmine Forum. You know, sit down, grab your coffee, or get the water drawn for doing those dishes. Or if you're in the car, get on that stretch of road where you can kind of like think for a little bit. Maybe you're driving down the interstate on the way to grandma's for dinner or on the way back. Who knows? But as we talk today, you know, last time I brought up some stuff and it was funny because a number of people said to me, I didn't really know why you were talking about that game theory. (laughs) When I went back and listened, I realized I gave you the buildup, but I never delivered the punchline. And that's that today I'm going to explain. We're being gamed. You know it. And actually, I, I think it's even funny now. We are the synod on synodality, the listening church, journeying and accompanying the marginalized, and all the rest of the word salad that goes along with that. It's funny because the Vatican had to come out and say, uh, 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 yeah, we're going to have to add another year to this. Why? Because nobody other than the communist useful idiots are involved in it. Everybody knows. What I was going to talk about with game theory You get to go work back in your mind. It seems like forever now. Heck, it was almost 10 years ago. Do you remember when Pope Francis first came to the Vatican? It was something that caught my eye right away. They hired McKinsey and Company. You know, the business consultants. You know, the ones that are in trouble now. The head of it was uh, involved in the opioid crisis. It turns out they were playing both sides of bankruptcy uh, consultations. Allegedly, you know, uh, I don't want to speak that uh, for absolutely certain because I'm not sure the legal status of some of these allegations that are out there. So let's just say these things are alleged in the media that go on and on. People have been around McKinsey for a while have kind of known. They do two things really well. They help the, the core of the corporation force the organization to go along with what that core wants. And they do that through methods called consensus management. The other way they do things, and it's the best way to describe consensus management is how to stuff down all of your reasonable criticism, how to marginalize people, how to put them on the sidelines and how to disqualify their opinions. But the other thing McKinsey's good at is they've been using game theory for organizational you know, uh, uh, management for year. over 50 you know, years. I get a flu shot every year. Uh-oh. Did you hear that? I think I heard something. You know, I get a flu shot every year. Yeah, I did. Huh. <laughs> what do you know about that? That was unintentional. I bumped a button. I didn't mean to bump. You know, not all of us are as qualified as others. Uh, I've been appointed by three popes. Three popes. Not just by Francis. Not just Francis. Yeah, I had that queued up for something else, and I bumped the button too early. Sorry about that. So back to McKinsey and game theory. They describe it in their own, like when they're little white papers where they're soliciting business and stuff, that game theory can help you analyze the market and know the best move to make that gives you the best results for your business. And they give examples like, say a new competitor arrives in your space. You can game out all of the possibilities, whether you want to collaborate with them, whether you want to crush them, 
whether, you know, in which way of crushing them would be best? Should you discredit them? Should you, you know, emphasize uh, characteristics of your product? Should you drop your price? Should you increase your price? All those things are put into a, a, a computer model using something called game theory. And so I went on and on about game theory, but I never told you why. And it's because I was thinking towards this synod part. In the synod, in this McKinsey and KPMG that were hired by the Vatican, and the Vatican reported it was to modernize Vatican communications. Really. I, if you've been paying attention to corporations and the way they talk these days, you know, look at Disney. <laughs> I, I like uh, some of these shows that are woke that are out there right now. The, the, the best way that they communicate about the shows is to discredit and insult the fans that they're seeking to have money from to watch the show. They say, well, you people just don't understand. This isn't, you know, uh, woke uh, shows that are out there, uh, the, the She-Hulk thing, which is apparently I've only seen clips of it, but it's just it's not even funny on its own, not let alone this whole woke messaging that goes with it. And the writers of the show have, taken on, this should sound familiar, disqualifying criticism of the show by saying the people are backwards or hate speech or somehow otherwise disqualifying what they say through an ad hominem attack. You know, you, you know what that feels like, right? You're either too rigid or you're one of these uh, bitter uh, traditionalists that are just mad because of Custodes, uh, you know, the traditions of, uh, they can't even get out, custodians of tradition. You know, this document that supposedly abrogates the, uh, I don't know how it does that when, well, you know, we get into the Pius V argument, we could be here for days. You know what I'm saying? That document was timed with the Synod to discredit our voice. Those of us who follow sacred tradition, those of us who understand an obligation to be aware of sacred tradition, are not rigid. We're not backwards. We're not preventing the church from anything. We're doing what we ought. We're doing what the church has told us to do, right? So it is with liturgy. Everybody's allowed to have an opinion but you. So when you play that out in game theory, how do you discredit that opinion? It's a valid opinion. Well, you make it invalid. You just put a document out that says, yeah, we're getting rid of that. Bingo. You're all gone now. That's what I was getting at with game theory, is that these things are played out in computer models. And the communications, the choice of words, and other things are put out there for testing in the market. Problem is, nobody's participating. Nobody that they would need to have go along with it, that is. And you see this in the, uh, in the USCCB. I promised we'd talk about the USCCB synthesis of the Synod, which I just laughed about. I'm still laughing about it. You should see his PDF. I don't know if you I'll put a link in it in the show notes. You know, it's Beautiful document. My, my favorite part of this document is the picture on the front. It shows a beautiful church, beautiful statues, a giant gold tabernacle, 
pews and pews that actually have kneelers. This looks nothing like the churches that, 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 that where this stuff happened. I don't see any exposed concrete. Um, there's some servers up there, but they're all boys. There's no altar girls. I don't see any busybody lay people up there yet. I don't see the lector with their hand in the air. And I don't see, you know, any um, spiritual dancers or anything like that. So just, just the picture on it, you know, this is imagery. As we get into the document, you're going to realize that nothing of the voices they heard came from these people that are depicted on the front of this report. You know, and, and this is one of the things anymore. The more and more that the, the modernism corrupts the church, the more that it it's all just become word salad, right? And that goes back to the modernists. They said that we're going to use our words but change their meaning. Like when we're talking about Father O'Connor, we're talking about that. But I mean, this is, uh, I, I love this, the, the, the austerity with which, or not the austerity, the solemnity with which this thing, dear brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Now, thanks be to God, they use the sacred name, the full sacred name, Christ Jesus. God bless it be Christ Jesus. Praise be Jesus Christ, right? So you have this uh, report from the USCCB. It begins with sisters and brothers. Now, immediately, I'm wondering, doesn't that marginalize the 53 other genders? You know, I wanted to talk about that. It was the USCCB that brought us inclusive language to begin with. And they added the sisters and brothers because, uh, you know, old misogynists like St. Paul didn't speak to the women, you know, and so they want to be a church that speaks to the women, we kind of get into this thing a little bit, and you realize, okay, this needs to be they, dear them in Christ Jesus, right? Or dear they in Christ Jesus. So they're assuming our pronouns. That's the first problem. I mean, if we're going to do what the synod says, right, we should be we should be going along these lines. So already the report starts off on the wrong foot because it's marginalizing all of these other genders. You know, I mean, that that's... There should be something like that if we're going to be a listening church and we're hearing from LGBTQ plus YZ127. Why aren't they in the greeting? Because this thing's meant to stuff you and me down. They're not the audience of this document. The pew sitters, the people depicted on the front are. Okay, so it's with... Immense gratitude, I have the distinct honor of sharing with you the national synthesis of the people of God in the United States of America for the diocesan phase of the 2021 to 2023 Synod for a Synodal Church, Communion, Participation, and Mission. That's the title. <laughs> I just read it straight from the thing. Now, already, get your pencil out mentally. If you're doing dishes, just do this in your mind. Think about this. If you're driving, don't get the pencil. Just keep driving. But I want you to picture in your mind. If you're reading this sheet of paper, you already have to get your red pen out. Scratch out that 2023 in the title. And you write above it 2024. See, because they added a year onto this thing. So we're already, we're already, the thing's out and we already uh, have to change stuff. So I like this. I'm just going to skip and pick out a few of the word salad phrases that the next paragraph begins in the name of us all. I want to first thank those who participated in the listening sessions across the United States. 
Now, who's, who's us and who's all? In the name of us all. I mean, I, I, you know, hmm. it sounds solemn, but what, is, what does that mean? In, in, in the name of us bishops? In the name of us people of God? Who's all there? In the name of all who participated? Who, who or in the name of all clergy? I was a little bit confused by that. So the synodal, 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 you know, listening consultations, I like this. It's not, they have to make it sound formal. This is the part of the organizational management that comes from this Delphi town hall thing. Those of you who work for big companies have dealt with a town hall before, and I'm going to break it down for you. You've been frustrated by how they work, and, and you know, you see right through the gig. They come and they invite everybody to give their opinion because they're going to consider everything, right? And you know at the end of the day, they're not considering any of it. They're creating an excuse to say, oh, well, you know, our consultation process discovered. And it's nothing that you wanted. It's what management wanted. That's what we're seeing here. So they went to parishes, schools, organizations, dioceses, and national regions express the voices of hundreds of thousands in our local churches. Our local tradition. I wanted to thank the various writing teams on parish. Now, the writing teams. You know what the job of the writing team was? To summarize. To get rid of those disqualified voices. Who do you think the people appointed? Well, we'll get into that. All of this is filtered communication. Do you think when you were in that town hall at that company that you worked for, that the communications team that was taking the petitions, do you think they saved all those, you know, or do you think they picked the ones that the leader said he wanted to, to have? You know, find me questions about the, uh, about the uh, overtime. Find me questions about the uh, HR uh, benefits program. That's, you know, and everything else, you know, the, the coffee machine on third floor doesn't work. That, that just got ignored. Same thing with this. Do you think they paid any attention to anybody that said, I want more Latin? <laughs> when we get into some of the synthesis highlights, <laughs> just wait to see who they heard from. Okay, okay. I always skip forward because it's something I want to talk about here. This is all, this is all how this works. It looks like this big, giant, formal process. See, and you're supposed to be sucked into it because all of this mind power, hundreds of thousands of people have participated. Oh, count me in. Oh, wow. My little voice. My little voice is represented here. This democracy. See, comrade, this is deliberation of state. We are moving forward in the way that people demand. So this, you know, I love this little letter. Is it's just great. It's uh, the gift of the church and deep in our communion. Word salad back. We're journeying together. So I'm going to jump ahead. There's an introduction. You know, there's 66. I like this. 66.8 million Catholics. 778 Latin dioceses, and 18 Eastern Catholic epochies. So they got to give you, you know, the graphs at the beginning. So you, so you start to feel small in this. Your job is to be, you're being invited psychologically to jump into this. See, because everybody's represented. 
all these big things, hundreds of thousands of people, all these dioceses, all of it. All, it's, it's all you. <clears throat> yeah, here we go. Here's the numbers. Big numbers. Big numbers. 700,000 participants. Ooh. Wow. How many Catholics are there? Oh, wait. The participants. Listen to that. Is everybody that participated Catholic? You know the answer to that, but I'm going to tell you right now. When you look at the highlights, none of the highlights are coming from anybody. It's Catholic. So who were these 700,000 participants? They weren't you and me. They didn't come down to the Latin Mass and say, uh, would you guys like more rosaries? No, that's not what this is about. There were 30,000 opportunities. 30,000 opportunities. So now they're saying you had your chance. That's the subtext of that line. 30,000 places where you could have spoken up and, and, and 22,000 reports. Did you file a report? No, I didn't file a report. As a matter of fact, I'm not, I think I saw something for the diocese, but it didn't sound like it was soliciting me. I don't think that's the fault of the diocese. It was probably open for everybody to put something in. But then again, I'm a little bit of a cynic. I didn't think anything. Maybe I'll put something in on the next one just to see if it shows up in any of these summaries, right? I like this. See, and they have to give you the impression. This, remember, this is a game of psychology here. Listen to, this, listen to this line after all those big numbers. A wide-reaching sentiment expressed by many was great appreciation for the synodal process. Who, who, who had appreciation for the synodal process? Was it the protesters, like the PETA people, like you know, was it, or was it you know? Did do you think that anybody that would like uh, less liturgical abuse appreciated the synodal process? Do you think anybody that wants to adhere to sacred tradition is appreciative of the synodal process? Who were these wide-range people that expressed great appreciation? I, I haven't met a person in person yet, anybody, that has great appreciation for the synodal process. So you have to ask yourself, who are these people, or are they just made up? Is this just a psychological ploy? Is this just empty words designed to create an impression? And I like the next line. They were truly grateful for the opportunity to be heard and to listen and for the spirit of openness. It's the spirit of openness. I don't know what the spirit of openness is. I'm going to be honest. I think we're talking about open-mindedness or what is traditionally referred to as liberality of thought, which is which is good. It's a, it's a type of virtue. It's something we should have. Taken in its best terms, that maybe that's what they're talking about. But no, I think when it comes down to dogmatic expressions of the church, there's no openness there. Um, if we're talking about things that have been condemned roundly and uh, infallibly by Mother Church, there's no openness to that. We can't re- open the idea of whether or not there's a hell. There is one, and people go there. 
So we don't have a spirit of openness about concepts that are that are well settled. But this just doesn't get into that. You know, this is we're listen to this next line. You can see the ability to sit around the table with strangers and share joys, concerns, hopes, and suggestions without intense debate or fear encouraged and motivated many. <laughs> Now, do you like the straw man without intense debate? See, you 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 convergently people over there that like the Latin, you just fight with everybody. See, and you cause these other people fear. And see, the, the, the ability to talk without fear encouraged them and motivated many to talk more. Yeah, that's what they <laughs> that's what every heretic says, right? I mean, let's be honest, there are not everybody is up to is up to good. So if you got a crook in there and he doesn't see any cops in the room, he's like, boy, this is great. I feel really welcome in here. I didn't have any fear, apprehension of uh, of arrest. I could really kind of, you know, relax and be myself. And it made pretty coin uh, picking pockets. You know? But anyway. rate. Many who conducted listening sessions described being, I like this, I love this, more word salad, transformed by the process of listening to others. You know, I, actually, I like that phrase in the sense that when, when I say my rosary and I'm open and paying attention to it, I'm actually in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the Blessed Mother, I'm transformed by that. And listening to her, yeah. I don't know, though, however, listening to some of the voices we're going to hear that were heard is any kind of transformation that we ought to be uh, uh, open to. Let's put it that way. So, you know, it's listening to others' stories and hearing about their faith journey. You know, Alistair Crowley was a real big one on sharing his faith journey. He got into uh, how he was able to manifest a demon. Uh, same with Anton LaVey. Remember him? You know, in 1969, he was complaining that a number of these modernists in the church were creating a church of Satan, but they were hiding it. He said, you know, they ought to be honest about what they're doing. He was sharing his faith journey. I... It's not valid on its own just that somebody has an opinion, is it? That's why they have to control it and invalidate your opinion. See, because you have to listen to their opinion, the selected opinion they want you to hear. And by creating these big numbers, belittle your opinion. You see kind of how the psychology of this works now? That's how uh, I'm going to skip over a bunch of this because there's part of it I want to get to. I like this on uh, on page six of the 16-page report. They have that um, a, a, a little hand-drawn hand with the heart coming out of it like a balloon. And it says, most participants genuinely believe that support for one another is essential. And that was the synthesis from Region 11. This is nice platitudes. You know, you can go into Hallmark and find even nicer things that are more specific to your life. 
So here we go. Enhancing communion and participation. Participation is probably, you know, lay participation. Because this 1997 document that Ratzinger was signed off by John Paul II about the concept of lay participation is all mangled up in the United States. We, we like to make lay people into priests and we confuse the ordained priesthood with the common priesthood of the laity. Because there is our uh, priestly aspects. They're described well in that document. That, of course, the other one that said that, uh, you know, abusing, using uh, extraordinary ministers of the Holy Eucharist every Sunday is an abuse. They, uh, nobody listened to that document. There was no synodal process with that. You know, we'll listen to the guy on the street, but we won't listen to Rome when Rome says things we don't want to hear. That's kind of the, the nutshell here. So let's see what they say. Maybe I'm just being a curmudgeon, right? I'm too rigid. Too rigid with what I want to say. Sacramental life, here we go. While the people of God long for a true communion that can only begin through Christ as we know him in the Eucharist, a sufficient percentage of participants reported obstacles to community within their parishes. Ooh, well, that's terrible. Obstacles to community, like mortal sin? I mean, it's, you know, that's the biggest obstacle I know about it. Uh, kind of easy. Are they baptized? There's another obstacle to it. Um, are they, do they have crimin? You know, okay, there's all the obstacles to communion. So, for so instance, are they out there supporting uh, abortion? Are they a pro-abortion politician? That would that'd be a pretty big obstacle. Let's see what these obstacles are. Partly due to divisive political climate and resulting polarization in the country. Hmm, gee, what's that a euphemism for there? Hmm. They talking about abortion and pro-abortion politics, maybe? They talking about, uh, what are they talking about? A significant per, uh, percentage of participants also indicate that receiving Eucharist does bring them more closely in solidarity with the poor. Now, maybe I'm too pragmatic of a guy. I don't know that those words ever came out of my mouth when I thought about taking Holy Communion. I don't know that, um, I don't know what that means. Let me put it that way. It's some sort of platitude. And I know the bishops like talk about this all the time, but I don't know what that. All, number of participants also indicate that receiving Eucharist, Eucharist is capitalized instead of, you know, I, I would reword it this way. Significant percentage. So this is a lot of people. So you and me, you know, we're, we're our opinions. If you, don't, if you don't think that way either, you know, obviously you and I are not the significant percentage here. Indicate that receiving Holy Communion does bring them more closely in solidarity with the poor. Yeah, maybe in this abstract way that all of us are dependent on Jesus Christ for everything we do. Yeah, I could see that. But I don't know that going to Holy Communion makes me feel like I've been homeless for a week. I don't I don't get what they mean. What does that mean, solidarity with the... Well, anyway, suggestions on building communion around the Eucharist. Listen to, listen, listen to those words. Suggestions on building communion around the Eucharist include items such as warmer hospitality, healing services, and more invigorating preaching by clergy. 
I, I don't know what they're talking about. Do you know what they're talking about? There's more, there's just more stuff. I mean, mm-mm-mm. so here's your, your synthesis on things. I like it. There's a section on a welcoming church. For many, the perception is that the blanket application of rules and policies is used as a means of wielding power or acting as a gatekeeper. <laughs> uh, they 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 feel they feel they feel bad because these rules would make them change, right? I mean, you might have to repent before you go to communion. That's terrible. Oh my gosh. But I want that. Then repent. You're being a gatekeeper. No, I'm just telling you the way it is. Because if you go up there without repenting, you draw on yourself condemnation. That's just terrible. It's our Lord is love. He's not rules. Is that what they're talking about? Does that make any sense? And does it matter? Yeah, there are objective realities as pertains to whether or not one is worthy to receive Holy Communion. Been that way since the get-go. And yeah, it does upset people because they don't, they're not being told the truth of the matter. There are choices, there are things you can do. Mortal sin. Anybody engaged in mortal sin cannot approach Holy Communion, right? Kind of easy. So how do you fix that? Well, it's nothing I do. The person that wants to go to Holy Communion needs to repent of the mortal sin. Go have it heard in confession. Bingo. Go right back to communion. Kind of easy. But here we're seeing it being attacked. We need to build more communion around the Eucharist. You know what that means. You've seen the examples of that. And this is coming out of, uh, I, I would bet there was some report that came from the Vatican on things that they were, you know, topics that they should emphasize or uh, topics of significant interest to the Holy Father, right? And I bet that was one of them. So there it is in there. Now we have to demonize this further. You know, psychologically, you have to you, you, you get a hit, but then you have to explain why you were hit. And so this document does it. The next comment in it, people want the church to be a home for the wounded and broken, not an institution for the perfect. Can anybody explain to me? All right. I'm going to be real crass here for a minute. When you've got the Coco Palmario, when you've got all of this corruption in the, that's visible and out there that goes through the clergy, who's making it for the perfect? That is an allegation against you and me. But do you see how misdirected it is? So there's, People noted that the church seems to prioritize doctrine over people, rules, and regulations over lived reality. So because society has degenerated into a cesspit of sin, as Our Lady of Fatima said, the church is going to suffer people desiring that the church is no longer her spotless self. Is that it? That's why they're saying in the middle of 
And then they wind up with people want the church to be a home for the wounded and broken, not an institution for the perfect. I got news for them. It's because the church is perfect and indefectible that it is a home for the wounded and the broken. Because she delivers the impeccable sacraments. Because she delivers divine grace, the ordinary means of which are the sacraments. According to the rules of sacred tradition, she's the best home any broken or wounded person could find. Period. That language is meant to make it look like your expectations are wrong and you need to change towards this future. That's the only purpose of that language right there. And it's disgusting to see it. I thought we were done with this in the 70s, but here it is again. So let's look at the, the rest. Uh, here comes the next way that you and I are being hit. They want the church to meet people where they are, wherever they are, and walk with them rather than judging them. To build real relationships through care and authenticity, not superiority. That's an empty allegation. It's a straw man. And it's a straw man that's meant to weaponize the useful idiots. If you tell a, uh, a felony robber who's, who, who injured four people in the course of robbing a bank and it still has the stolen funds sitting somewhere, and let's say in addition to robbing a bank, he went through a nursing home and took all the money that the old people had, even found the Folgers coffee can in the pack and took that too. That way there's no emotional problem here. He took from the bank. Some people think, well, the banks have insurance. They can handle it. No, he took from these poor old people too. So he should just be able to go up to communion, right? Yeah, come on up. We want to build, build a community and we're not here to, you know, I'm not here to judge you. I want to walk with you. Hey, that's my wallet. That's what they're saying. The, the words themselves, the only purpose of these words right here is to try to create an emotional wedge saying that we don't have care and authenticity and that by understanding doctrines of the church, we're necessarily acting superior. I'm sorry, I, that's kind of like old school, right? That, 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 that attitude went out in the 60s. We all understand that's still wrong. Nobody's doing that. There is nobody that does that. But what they do is they take this and then tag anybody that's traditional with it. We have to find a way to work through this weaponized language. Maybe we'll have, you know, more discussion on it, right? Because you're not that way. I'm not that way. You done with the dishes yet? Hey, if you're putting coffee on, I'll take a cup. The hope for, if you're on the road, you know, I don't know. No, you're still good. Keep driving. You can go a little bit longer. Just keep holding it. Here comes the other smack here. The hope for a welcoming church expressed itself clearly with the desire to accompany with authenticity LGBTQ plus persons and their 
families. I can't even get that word out. Are you talking about the mothers and parents or the kid that now thinks that they're, you know, born a girl, now a man uh, with the thing in the nose and, you know, the spiked colored hair that uh, changes their pronouns weekly? What are they talking about there? I've never seen anybody who expressed a sincere desire to learn about the Catholic faith turned away or treated poorly, period. Even the ones with the crazy hair and the tattoos. Have you? This is more scapegoating, more weaponized. So here we go. Many who identify as LGBTQ+. Now, first of all, where did we get this problem? Didn't it come from the bishops themselves who couldn't figure out what gender God was and want to change all of our language to be inclusive? That's where we got this from. Now they're, they're taking it to the next step. They believe they're condemned by church teachings. Uh, if they persist without repentance, just like the robber, just like uh, the fraudster, just like the adulterer, just like the, uh, uh, you name it, anybody in mortal sin, it's the same. Yeah, that's right. You know that it's funny. You you get the Father Brown mysteries. You got Flambeau. Flambeau had uh you know kind of like it's his lifestyle. His lifestyle was theft, and robbery, right? He had to change. Father Brown always telling him he's got to change. But they had a friendship over that. Even though Flambeau knew what he was doing was wrong, he was addicted to it. A lot of sinners have that problem. Alcoholics, you know, they were they learned to work with it. I don't know what the deal is with this stuff. It's no different than any other sin. They aren't being treated any differently. Other than, are they instead asking that we change the doctrines so that these people feel welcome without a need to repent? That would kind of cause us to change our Lord's words, right? I don't know. Let's move on from that because the, we got this other group here. People who have been divorced, whether remarried or not, often feel unwelcome within the church. A significant number of consultations included comments that divorced people feel judged by others in the church. I don't, you know what? This is dead. I, I don't know why anybody, if you can go down and get a McNullment in a couple of months and have your sheet of paper and the numbers in the United States prove that that's all it takes. You know, it's been that way since the 60s. Father Hardin said the church will cease to exist because of annulments in the United States. Father Hardin said that. I don't see how anybody today in this situation could say they don't feel welcome. Period. They done that, that, that. That horse been out of the barn for, you know, decades now. So the annulment process is experienced as unduly burdensome and judgmental as well. So now see that, there you go. Now they want to get rid of the annulments. And I don't know how anybody could say it's unduly burdensome and judgmental. The pain left many divorced and remarried Catholics feeling like they're held to a higher standard 
while people have committed their sins, continue to receive communion. What? Who's being judgmental in that sentence? Let me reread that sentence again. And why would this be published by a bishop? Right? This was read by a bishop. What's he say? This pain left many divorced and remarried Catholics feeling like they are held to a higher standard while people who have committed other sins continue to receive communion. Okay, okay, let's make let's read this in the best light. They're right. Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, they continue to receive communion. Yeah, yeah, you're you're right. You're right, divorced and remarried people. You are held to a higher standard because these politicians can go out there, you know, and pay for abortion, do all that, and they'll have archbishops backing them up. You're right. That's the only way I can make that make sense. Otherwise, how do these people not know whether or not these other people have repented? The robber, for instance. Let's take somebody, that our, our serial robber, still has the coffee can he stole from the nursing home in the garage. He's not telling anybody. He feels bad. He goes back and he brings the coffee can to the priest and says, you know, Father, I'm sorry I did this. Here's the money. Um, I stole, you know, some of what I stole from the bank I already spent and the car's outside. You can have the car and the Folgers cup. I'm sorry I did it. And the priest says, are you going to do it again? He says, no, I don't want to. I really, I, I really don't mean to. I, you know, I, I've done this all my life, but I actually, I got a job now at uh, Kroger's and I'm bagging groceries. I'm going to try to make it. He, and the priest that judges him is having, you know, like really, really repented. And then right there, he's got his reparations with them. Are they saying when that guy goes to communion, you know, he's still committing these sins? And no, the difference is, he hasn't made the sin part of his life at that point. Divorced and remarried is an ongoing thing. And what does this mean for the divorced and remarried who followed what the church said? I knew a couple that came to Mass every week, always felt welcome, prayed the rosaries for decades, raised their children Catholic, they didn't ever approach communion. Why? Because they knew they couldn't. They never complained. They didn't shake their fist at the priest and say, you know, you owe that to me. Nobody asked them to. Right? Were they second-class citizens? Were they... Uh, looked down on by the superior? No, they actually respected the rules of sacred tradition. They respected the doctrines of the church. That's the difference I see here. I've seen people in irregular situations that still loved sacred tradition and mother church, and I've seen how they've gone through great personal sacrifices to respect and to uphold mother church. And then I've seen people like this, mostly out of the clergy, that wish to denigrate the church and tear down sacred tradition and what Mother Church teaches. Those people, you know, this Mother Church 
Mothers always know which one of their kids is spoiled, right? And sometimes it's not worth the fight yet to work the spoiled part out of the child who feels entitled, who feels that they could do whatever. And some parents never learn. Other parents, they know, and when the time's right, they deal with it. This is neither one of those things. This is some sort of strange indulgence to, oh, well, you know, yeah, um, these poor people. But the, you know what? The attack is on the church and on us who love Mother Church. And is it going to do anything for these divorced and remarrieds if they, let's just say they say tomorrow, all y'all can come to communion. Does that change the state in life of these people? Have they learned to love Mother Church and sacred tradition at that point? No. It's done nothing for them. But see, it gets back to modernism, and modernism finds truth in feelings and emotion and impulses. We'll get into what radicalized. It wasn't Vatican II. We'll get into what radicalized these Catholics later. This is all... This is all modernist talk and i promised i'd do it but i mean you you know where the rest of this goes right we know from years this is all just a regurgitation of all the communist marxist blocks you know I mentioned last time they break us up into blocks and balkanize us but i wanted to go through some examples of how the psychology of this document works and you guys know it i think everybody knows it because one of the problems one of the reasons they had to extend the senate is nobody cares about it the only people that care about it are useful Marxist useful idiots, uh, social justice champions, and the people that were paid to say things so that they could come up with stuff like this. I like this too. Synodal consultations also express concerns around racism. Catholic people of color spoke of routine encounters with racism both inside and outside the church. Indigenous Catholics Wait, listen to that again. Indigenous Catholics. <laughs> At this point, can anybody explain to me who an indigenous Catholic is? Really? Or so like, okay, so the Poles in Poland, they go to church. Are they indigenous Catholics? The Italians. Let's go over. You know, if you go outside of Rome, you get outside the touristy sections, maybe you go over like, you know, where Father where St. Padre Pio was from, you got Italians. Then they've been Italians for like a long time, right? Hey, Paisan, you know, are they indigenous Catholics? Who the hell is indigenous Catholic? I don't know. Uh, is this like more of the Amazon Synod stuff? Are we talking about like the witch doctor on the riverbed? What are we, who, who, they spoke of generational trauma caused by racism and abuse in boarding schools. Hmm. You know, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I, 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 some of this is like, it's so out there. Catholic people of color spoke of routine encounters with racism, both inside and outside the church. They've never, you know, they've never really seen what happens. You got the Italians wearing red on St. Joseph's Day and the, and the Irish wearing green. You ever see what happens when those two mix? 
Well, maybe they don't do that anymore. Maybe nobody cares anymore. I don't know. This doesn't sound like something I've ever seen. For one of the truth. I mean, you want to see some interesting uh, ethnic treatment, let me take you over to a Greek Orthodox church and uh, bring you up for communion. You see what you want to see what a welcoming church is like. I might be able to get away with it, but uh, I, I, I bet most of the listeners, if I brought you up there, that priest is going to say, who are you? Why are you here? You, you Orthodox? You won't get communion. And then wait until you, you see what those old ladies treat you like after church because you went up there. You want to see what, you know, what a welcoming church is like. So all this stuff in here, it, you know, I don't, I don't get it. Young people also want the church to speak out about issues that matter to them, especially justice, race, and climate change. You know, the zealots in our Lord's time wanted bread too, right? Did our Lord, like, you know, uh, pick up the sword and uh, join Barabbas and go kill some Roman soldiers? Just because these opinions are out there doesn't make them valid, does it? But here it's being shoved down on you. See, because what this really says is we found some youth who said these things and we're going to shove this down your throat because we think you should be. That's what that says. Out of those 700,000 uh, participants, I bet five cared about climate change and they were all paid. And who knows if any of them were Catholic, right? Youth who participated in synodal sessions, however, stressed that they should not be seen and spoken of mostly as the future of the church. That's right. The bishops told us it's the Latinos. They're the future of the church, not the youth. Just ask Gen X. Where is Gen X? Oh, they didn't have a synod and they weren't listened to, were they? They were told that God is a universal force. So they all went this other way and they're no longer Catholic, right? Just a few people like me, they had St. Paul moments that stuck around. Thanks to the prayers, sweat, and tears of these rigid, old, sacred tradition-believing Catholics that prayed for con conversions. The rest of Gen X... They're gone. They're gone. So anyway, well, yeah, the youth of the church, they don't want to be called the future of the church. They want to be both seen and heard and included more in church life. It's how? How do they want to be included? Especially by participating meaningfully in, in parish and diocesan councils and ministries. Yeah, <laughs> this is great. This is what the communists did. They had these young youth councils, Cosmonol, Kosomol, excuse me, Kosomol, which was uh, young Soviets clubs. And young Soviets clubs could come to the committee meetings and speak their mind. And, you know, basically by speaking their mind, what they were doing is getting the talking points from the committee chairman so that it would make a nice show for the committee meeting to show that the youth are along with the agenda. Sorry. But it's what that is, right? You, you now believe it. This is the authority of this document. These 700,000 participants, they all said this. You and me, we're the weirdos because we didn't think about any of that. Actually, the young people I talked to in the encounter, they don't want none of that crap either. 
They want a rosary. They want mass. They want to know what the doctrines are. Um, they, there's renewed renewed interest in the virtues. Um, there's millennials. Some of the millennials think they are the clergy. That's actually a joke. Um, and you know they they think they are the magisterium, but they think they're everything else too. Isn't that the problem with some generations of youth? I mean, that's the way that works. So yeah, but the bishops here, you know, they're going to make the. Uh, the young synodal committees and bring the youth up so that the youth selected youth can give selected statements. Kind of like Greta. You should be ashamed. Ongoing formation, formation for mission. Participants of every age and demographic group spoke of the need for lifelong formation. Yeah. What do you need formation for if you don't have to repent anything? Oh, you need formation so that you could be a good committee member, good synodal participant. Yes, comrade, I understand very much these things are very important to the future of church. They ask for retreats and other opportunities to pray and reflect together as well as encouragement in, uh, for in their individual spiritual lives. Well, that one's kind of harmless. Maybe if they could find confession sometimes. Maybe if they could go to like First Saturday Mass. Most of these dioceses, there's, you can't find either thing. But they want ongoing formation. What are they looking for here? Oh, yeah, more small faith groups, more Marxist cells. More places where you're told what to think. Social mission of the church, communication. I'm trying to get down to, oh, here we go. Co-responsibility. This is where the workers unite. Comrade, are you hearing me? We have very important work. The state expects us to do good work for future. Here comes, a great deal of what must be done in a parish does not require ordination, and many lay people have administrative and organizational skills. They could relieve pastors of some of the burden, freeing priests to be present and to develop relationships with the people of the parish, something both priests and lay people desire. <laughs> this is the funniest thing in the world to me. So uh, look at the parish schedule of these big parishes and you know you're not going to tell me when there's 30 people that work in the parish office that the priest is tied down with administrative duties period no he's tied down with the bishop calling him into like you know um chancery meetings and all of the virtus training and all of the diocesan uh, talkbacks that they have and where they're basically programmed and told what to say Okay, so he's got all that crap. He's got the bureaucracy imposed by the chancery. Then he's got the bureaucracy imposed by having all these administrative workers and busybodies. Then he's got the lay, you know, formation ministry groups. They're demanding time on him because they require his attention so they can look important. Then he's got the music director and the choices for the week, for the uh, liturgies, for the weekend. He's got to deal with the weddings that come up. Maybe... We just kind of went back to what the curia of ours did. Maybe if we just put the priest in the confessional several hours a day, he could get to learn his par uh, parishioners really well, right? Because they're in there talking to him under the seal of confession. That'd be a good way. But that's not what they're talking about there. I don't know what they really want. They want relationship of collaboration at all levels of the church. People of God signaled 
that they're ready and willing to assume their responsibility for service in the church and in the world. What are they really talking about there? Do you know? I haven't seen a church yet unless the priest is a real dud where the lay people won't help out. I've seen it before where you get one problem lay person that runs off all the others because they're just a real pain to deal with. I've seen that happen. But I've never seen it where, you know, if the priest asked, he doesn't get help. I, I haven't seen that happen. I Even when I was young, I remember a priest asking me one time, will you, will you count the uh, envelopes and carry the ledger? And I did it. No problem. There were other people who volunteered and did other stuff too. Didn't take, uh, you know, being beaten over the head. And, and I really doubt that 700,000 participants brought any of this up. I have seen people ask for more confessions. I have seen people ask for more sacraments. But that got turned into, uh, we need a cheaper workforce in the, in the church because we're going to be thin on cash soon. That's what that reads like to me, sorry. But maybe, maybe it doesn't to you, but that's what it looks like to me. I like this engaging discernment too. The value of simply listening is a clear message of synodal process. So, so that's good. You've been listening. We've been talking, right? So we've been synoding here or synodalizing. Synodalizing? How would we synod? We're doing synod. There we go. We're being synod. We're being a synod people. So we've exchanged value just by simply listening. We must be open to new ideas and new ways of doing things. <laughs> yeah. Let's be open to saying mass in Latin, to regular confessions, to saying our rosary. How about some of that, right? No, 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 no. So you don't understand that, 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 that marginalizes the divorced and remarrieds, and that makes people mad. No, no, no. We're not talking to talk about it anymore. We're, we're going to be a church of platitudes, a listening church, welcoming. It was frequently reported that the participants would welcome more opportunities to be listened to and to hear expressions of others' views on the faith and the life in the church. <laughs> they, really? They, 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 that, that's handpicked. Nobody said that. It was thought that this might contribute in a significant way to overcoming the polarization that is felt everywhere. What polarization? The only polarization is what our Lord said. You're either with him or against him. And anybody that wants to overcome that polarization is an enemy of God. That's the only polarization that matters. Are you with Jesus or are you against him? Some noted how few opportunities are offered for true listening in a culture where routinely speak past each other. Uh, you know, that's, I don't know, that's whatever. I feel important. You need to listen to me. I think I've heard of that attitude before. I think Fulton Sheen talks about it. Father Harden talks about it. I don't know why we're coddling if that's what they mean. It's difficult to know what they mean because we're supposed to be a catalyst for engaging discernment. So out of all these wounds that they're seeking to heal, 
what I notice is they don't, these enduring wounds in the church, you know, I, they talk about the pandemic. They talk about, you know, the, the abuse scandal. They talk about stuff, but they never talk about how they took away our statues, how they whitewashed our church, how they build the things that look like Incan temples of sacrifice, how they give you like these empty boxes and call it a parish, how they close parishes and consolidate them and then shove like, you know, a busybody lesbo uh, administrator on you who's looking for, you know, uh, creation of care and um, some sort of like Wiccan ceremonies instead of Catholic stuff. They don't talk about any real wounds going on. Do they? No. They come up with stuff. And let's talk about COVID. Okay, one of the things they come up with is COVID-19. Um, yeah, there's a wound there. I know one parish that didn't have any confessions for two years. Unless there's some like miracle, miracle. Because it would take a miracle. That parish is dead now, right? No confessions for two years. How did they satisfy? I guess they were dispensed from Easter duty. Maybe maybe we'll get around that. But me as a layperson, I'm not going two years without confession. Would you? And yet they were denied. Anyway, talk about a wound. There's some real wounded people that were injured by that. But they're not talking about fixing that, are they? No. So there's the baloney. There's the baloney report on the synod synthesis and how we're being gamed. You already knew it, though. I saw it come out this past week, you know, where the Vatican said, oh, we got to add another year. Our lady talked about this, though. Bishop against bishop, cardinal against cardinal. You, you know if they're going to fight with each other, they're going to fight with you. That's the subtext there. You know, and go back and look at the third secret of Fatima again. I keep bringing that up, bringing up to other people. They say they saw a bishop in white as if one, as if, as if a person passes in front of a mirror. And when you look at a mirror, you see two of them. Benedict Francis. And then it's the way she said it. We took it to be the Bishop of Rome. Not, she didn't say it was the Bishop of Rome. She didn't say it was the Pope. She said we took it to be. I don't know. I think it's synod thing. It, I, I, it gives me hope that nobody's participating in it. They see the game it is. Why? Because it's an old, worn-out model that you've seen from HR departments, from woke corporations, from uh, poorly conducted town halls. You know what this thing is. Heck, most of us saw this go on back in the 80s and 90s. It's, it's old tricks. They've just gone global, right? You never would have thought that the whole church would try to do this, when, especially when it went so well the, when they did it across the country before. But here we are. Let's, let's say a prayer. To Our Lady of Fatima and Akita, pray for us. Let's say Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen.
name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Look, uh, so we went on on the sin a little bit long, but I wanted to cover that uh, game theory thing. I, I do have something else that was supposed to be. I'm I'm behind. I'm sorry. I want to give you something interesting. You know, today was kind of like a little bit of ranting and a little bit of uh, who is same old stuff going on. But before the the 105th anniversary of the Miracle Sun, I had wanted to have this uh, episode done. Um, but I'll have it soon. And it covers things I've talked about in the past. Have you noticed more people now talking about what I mentioned before? Other people have noticed it. When I was talking about the 39th, uh, 39 latitude north, and Adam was on one side of it, Akita's on the other. Now more people are talking about that. It's kind of funny. You know, it's like they listen. They never refer back, but they listen to hear the idea. If you thought that was interesting, I've got something that's just going to totally bake your noodle. Yeah, when I brought that up, I didn't bring up everything. I just want to see if the idea went out there, and it did. Now everybody's talking about it, and you see it all over the place. But wait till you hear what I have to tell you on the rest of that. Our, our lady in the Miracle of the Sun goes throughout time in a crazy way. And it's just going to bake your noodle. What happened on October 13th in, in its connection to Our Lady? All the way back to the prophecy of Daniel. How's that for a little bit of a cliffhanger? What's Daniel have to do with this? Well, I mean, it could even worse. Not just Daniel, but Alexander the Great, too. See, I have to get the Greek in there. Hey, you know, I do. There's your temptation. There's your... Uh, enticement for what's coming. If you have a guess, if you think you might know what I'm talking to talk about, and it's wild connection of October 13th and Fatima and the miracle of the sun in Moscow, feel free to contact me and let me know. But I guarantee you won't know. You've never heard this stuff, and it's going to bake your noodle and blow your mind and make you cheer for Our Lady. Trust me. That's it. You've done. Wait, wait, wait. Ivan? Yeah, I agree. Talk too much, didn't I? Yeah, yakety yak, blah, 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 blah. That's what they, but you know what? It wasn't word salad other than what I was quoting. Was it? Was it? And I don't think I left you hanging on anything this week like I did last time. Game, you know, game theory now maybe understand a little bit of what I was talking about. This was all cooked up by McKinsey, KPMG for the Vatican to try to come up with a path, a communications method to get the Vatican where they want to go on these new world ideas and how to deal with people like us that don't want to go along with it. That's what I was getting at when I brought up game theory. In the meantime, I see the Holy Spirit's done his thing and, and a stiff-necked, uh, superior, rule-believing, sacred tradition-following, rigid lay people have stubbornly refused to go along with the program. So they're going to have to add another year and punish us with another year of it. Okay, so be it. Our Lady of Fatima and Akita, pray for us. You've been listening to the Bellman Forum podcast. I'm your show host, John B. Manos. Production of this episode was underwritten by an anonymous donor that asks you to say your rosary daily. My God, how we need it. If you didn't say it daily, tell by some other, help me say it. Maybe when you get up tomorrow, if you've been having trouble saying your rosary, do this trick. Try this. Here's my little contribution. 
So this is our spiritual tip of the week. Ding. You know, I get a flu shot every year. No, no, no. Spiritual tip. Not, 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 you know, social justice stuff. You know, I get yeah, a flu no, shot. No, 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 no. It doesn't matter. I'm talking about spiritual health. If you want to say your rosary and you've been having trouble doing it, try this trick. Whatever time's better for you, whether the night before or the morning of, tell the Blessed Mother, I want to say my rosary today. Help me do it. Tell your guardian angel, I want to say my rosary today. Help me do it so I can make the Blessed Mother happy. Try it. Trust me. Just try it. I guarantee you, good results. No, wait. I have to make, uh, as a lawyer, I have to make representations in a way that uh, where it can't be sued. No, I'm gonna. That's a warranty. I guarantee. You, if you do that, you're gonna be happy with the results. So anyway, backdoor underwriting was of this production uh, of this podcast was from a uh, anonymous donor that asked you to say a rosary daily. If you would like to underwrite production of the podcast, contact the forum using the contact form on the website bellermanforum.org or call us. Phone numbers on the website. This podcast is a production of the Bellarmine Forum, formerly known as the Wanderer Forum Foundation, which was founded in 1965 on the heels of Vatican II as a faithful enclave for the Catholic faith without all the progressive modernist confusion. You know, those superior people that are rule-believing and uh, follow sacred tradition are rigid. Unlike all those people that went through radicalization we're going to get into that too maybe the episode after next we'll talk about what really radicalized catholics it wasn't vatican ii by the way our producer sits at the right hand of his father and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead our executive director made all things visible and invisible our technical director is an unnamed angel assigned to us by the producer per show the bellerman form is a non-profit public charity and all donations are tax deductible to the maximum extent Permitted by law. This show is copyrighted by the Bellarmine Forum 2022 to the greater glory of God and the honor of his blessed mother.